You're in Matthew chapter 12. Uh, those of you who've been here for a while, you know. So if anyone is new and you may think, why is this guy preaching on these verses today? Very, very strange verses. Um, if someone is tuning in perhaps for the first time, okay, I'm going to, heard something about grace for you, going to listen to this. This is going to seem like the strangest of messages today. Um, and it's kind of a difficult passage to me. I think it may be a little challenging for me to hold your interest. I'm just going to throw that out there. Uh, you may struggle. You may wonder, what is the connection to my life? I will go in. I'm, I'm literally looking around, and I'm seeing a lot of seasoned Christians. Uh, I'm going to have to get real basic. I mean, like, really, really basic to say some real, you know, plain, simple truths out of this passage. And the Lord's like, yes, when we're in these kinds of passages, then you say the plain, simple truth so people will know where those truths come from when we say them because they're in such passages as this. I think I'll repeat this in a minute. I'm about to start reading. Mike used a word at the start uh, of the service when he got up and, and started his announcements, and he used the word opportunity. It didn't hit me till yesterday morning because I'm literally trying to think, now, Lord, what is the connection of this with what we've read before? Where's this going? This seems like a couple of random passages that may not even relate to each other. How do they relate with the previous? But he showed me yesterday morning, uh, so it's not in any of your notes, one of the running themes of this passage is opportunity. We could say opportunity lost. And the application immediately is Mike was talking about you ladies have an opportunity. He talked about men. 23 men last year went through radical men's mentoring, a nine-month mentoring of, of discipleship. He talked about the word opportunity. Some of you may not have the opportunity to be here tomorrow. You literally could not be here. Some of the men, you cannot take part in that. You're like, just the commitment level. I've heard what it's about. You're not playing games in there. It's a lot of time. It's a commitment. You can't. But there's others. Just let me tell you, there's a lot of ladies around the world that would love to get together and pray with some other ladies. They can't. You have an opportunity. There are men around the world that would love to get with six, seven, eight other men and just learn together and share their story together and walk through the Christian life together. This is a second sermon, by the way. This has nothing to do with all this yet. They don't have the opportunity, but you do. You have this. I'm not talking about the ones who can't. Some of you. And if you blow the opportunity, then the result is on you. You say, well, what's the result? Jeff, can you get over here? Deanna, can you come fix us? No, we can't. It's too late. You blew the opportunity. One of the, one of the lessons of this passage is when an opportunity is there, you better take advantage of it. Later on, you wish you would have. There I go getting mean right off the bat. I haven't even read the verses yet. I'm getting mean. What's going on? So the immediate context of well, I cannot re-preach all the additional sections. Most of you have been here with us. Can I just say the near context of what we're about to read is back in verse 22. So if you have your Bible open, this is our sixth message in Matthew 12. 
Verse number 22, a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, Jesus, and he healed him. We know that Jesus cast this demon out of this man. And then some saw, are we seeing the son of David? But the Pharisees said the only reason he's able to do that is because he's being used by Satan himself. Beelzebul, the prince of demons, is using him to cast out demons. And that was totally debunked by the Lord. I'm not saying that that is exactly what's being applied to verse 43, but the, I, the idea, the context here is a demon has been expelled, and so now Christ is going to give us an example of what happens in that scenario or any time a demon may leave. So with that in mind, we're going to read verses 43 to 45, but we're going to flow right on into 46 to 50, and there's going to be, I think, some light connection between the two, but ultimately we're going through the life of Christ as Matthew has been inspired to write it. Verse number 43. Strange text. Jesus says, When the unclean spirit, it's a demon, has gone out of a person, two things happen. It and the person it left, two things are happening. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places, arid, dry, desert-type places. I'm going to go ahead and confess to you. I don't know the significance of the arid, dry, desert, waterless places. I don't know. I read a couple of things. Didn't make, I cannot confidently get up and preach something that I'm just not sure about. We're just going to take it at face value. This demonic force, unclean spirit comes out of this person. It's passing through waterless places, seeking rest it wants rest it's in turmoil it's not having fun it wants rest but finds none it can't find rest therefore then it says i will return to my house notice my house do you guys already we don't have to say what that is right my house i'm going to return to my house obviously he means i'm going to go back to this person I left in verse 43 verse 44 then it says when it can't find rest I will return to my house from which I came and when it comes now it's back at this person it finds quote the house three things the house is empty swept and put in order what is that saying has happened two things happen the demonic force comes out it goes looking for rest and can't find it. Meanwhile, this person has swept clean. They've cleaned up their life. They've, they've, they're, they're doing some new things, got rid of some of the old sinful things in their life. They've done a cleanup job. They've put some things in order. You know, you want to know, literally, some of you are thinking, I think I know someone who has lived this situation. They had crazy chaos. There's someone listening right now. They're, they're, they're thinking, I don't know what happened to my little girl, my little boy, but that wasn't them. That, whatever happened for that period of time, that wasn't them. There's so, so much chaos, disorder. They could not keep their head on straight. They were doing all kind of wild things that we never taught them to do and just get involved in it. And then it's like a cloud lifted and it's like they changed and, and they started doing some good things and, and they got some order and where they would went through three jobs in one year they, they're kind of holding this same job for about a year and a half now we're really excited it's almost like we've got them back some of y'all are like 
I know somebody like that. Or some of you are like, that was me. I returned to my house from which I came, but he comes and he finds the house empty. Well, he left it. This demonic force left it. It's still empty. It's swept and it's put in order. Then it, the evil unclean spirit, goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself. Here comes eight of them now, and they enter and dwell there in the house, back in the same person. And Jesus says, and the last state of that person is worse than the first. Watch this. It goes really, really bad. It got better. And ultimately it got way worse. Jesus says, so also will it be with this generation of the Jews that he was preaching to. He's warning, nation of Israel that's in his time, it's going to be like you. It's going to end up worse in the end unless you take advantage of the opportunity that's before you. Now we go down to verse number 46 to 50. And it seems like it's changing scenes a little bit. So we have the words of Christ. He's teaching in a house. So as he's teaching that, watch verse 46. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. So here comes a man and lets the Lord know that your mother and your brothers are outside and they're asking to speak with you. Notice verse 48. But he replied to the man who told him. Now watch, let me read it incorrectly. Who's my mother? Who's my brother? Who's my mother? Who's my brothers? That's not what he's saying. Uh, my Lord, Lord, your mother and your brothers are outside. They've asked to speak with you. Verse 48. Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? Stretching out his hands toward the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. I told you this is a weird passage. <laughs> Y'all are already uncomfortable. Like, did Jesus really say that about his mother? Mary! Mary! Watch, got to keep the voice down. Don't get it too excited today. Lord, it's your mother and your brothers. They're here to see you. Stretching out his hand, he says, Wait, Who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Stretch out his hand toward his disciples and says, here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Uh, your mother and your brothers, you want to know who my mother and brother and sisters are? The ones who do the will of my Father in heaven. That's who my mother and brother and sisters are. So guys, we have uh, two passages before us. We're going to try to attempt to do both of them I'm going to apologize for the title. I never say anything about our titles. We just kind of throw them out there. I mainly look at a title as something that someone may go back to later on the website, and I can say, go look for this title. Oh, I found it. Um, I try to make them really, really simple. They are supposed to kind of give some connection, some overview of what these verses are about. I struggled with this week. Somebody's going to see that and think, oh, Jeff's trying to be alliterated today. No, I'm not. I really struggled. Like, what is the connection here? So ultimately, look at the title of today's message. It's about the protection and priority that's provided by a relationship with God. Split in two, it's talking about the protection 
that's provided by a relationship with God, and then we could say the priority that is provided by a relationship with God. So the idea of relationship seems to be the connecting thing between the two passages. Look at verse number 43, and notice with me number one this morning. The insufficiency of reformation. I think that's one of our ideas. Listen, the insufficiency... Reforming your life. I told you I was going to get really basic today. Reforming your life, cleaning up the life, turning over a new leaf, getting rid of that bad thing, putting that, I'm not doing that anymore. I'm going to start doing some good things. Reforming your life is totally insufficient. Verse 43, Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, it finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from whence I came, which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. The unclean spirit does not like swept and put in order. Therefore, apparently, it goes to bring with it seven other spirits, more evil in itself. We've got to go in and make this back unswept and unordered. So they're going to come in and sure enough... They enter and dwell in this person. They dwell. They make themselves at home. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. Let me begin right here. I know I've said this multiple times through the study of Matthew. Demons are real. Very, very real. I'll go ahead and tell you, if some of you knew how much that I believe they are involved in daily activity, some of you would think I was a really strange person. I believe they are heavily involved. I believe the angelic forces are heavily, the angelic beings are heavily involved in life and the demonic beings and forces, they are heavily involved in life, in your life, in your family. I wonder why that's going on in my family. In our country, things are going on around the world. They are involved in this. I believe it is heavy and thick. One thing I'm noticing here is Jesus is talking about them as if, again, they are real beings. You guys are beings. You are, real, you are a real being. So if somebody says, I don't, I don't take this stuff literally, then go ahead and say that you don't believe that you are a literal being. Because Jesus talks about both on equal terms. They are Now here's the problem. There's several things in this text that makes my mind start going that are not clear. And so I realize we really don't know a lot about demons. And I don't want to just stop what I'm doing and let's do a study of demons. But while it comes up in our text, then I think the Lord would have us to learn some things and maybe, hey, that's what we don't know and here's what we do know. So can you give me just a moment to hit that, laying some groundwork this morning. Here's what we don't know, okay? They're very, very powerful. They're more powerful than you. They're more powerful than I am right now. They can enter this physical world and have great effects, tremendous effects in the physical world when allowed by God. But here's what I don't know. Here's what is not clear from the text. And the first thing you're going to think, Jeff, that's a silly thing. Okay, I'm just telling where my mind goes. How large are they? Have you ever thought about that? These are real beings. You say, well, Jeff, they're spirit beings. I know. But if, if this were a person and it's this demonic being, evil, unclean spirit is in this person, then it's not over here, it's in the person. But if it's not in the person, how large is it? How much, I get it, it does, it's not physical space, but how large of an area does this thing take up? How large are they? Do they have to condense themselves to go into a person? How can eight of them in this situation enter the same person? Another question I have. 
how autonomous are these lower level, this apparently a lower level unclean spirit, how autonomous are they to make up their own mind about who they're going to go possess? This one seems to be making some of his own decisions. Do they always, how much do they answer to the ones that rank above them? And ultimately back to Satan. He's only one person. And he's not brilliant as God is. He can't know everything. So are they able to kind of make some of their own decisions on the fly? Here's another one. I know when I connected this back to verse 22 and 24, now we read verse 43. We immediately think Jesus is talking about an exorcism when, when an unclean spirit is cast out, perhaps. But it's not automatic. Could this be implying that this demonic force on its own leaves this person and on its own decides to come back? It comes and goes and then comes back. Is it only talking about he was forced out and the person only reformed their life and here it comes back in? Look at verse 43. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, again, I don't know the meaning of this, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none let's write down a few things that are clear from the text i'm going to give you five four will be in your handout number one here's what we learn guys there are degrees of evil there are degrees of evil among demons this one's evil i don't want anybody walking away saying well i guess casper the friendly ghost he's kind of nice he's really sorry about what happened there in heaven and got expelled and He's really regretful. Oh, I'm sure they're regretful, but listen, they're evil, wicked, unclean, but some are more wicked. Raise your hand. Have any of you ever seen, I I know I shouldn't do this because a lot of hands will not go up. Have any of you ever seen one of my favorite movies, The Patriot? You ever seen that? Raise your hand. Have you seen that? Okay, more than half. Looks like about 70, 80%. Okay, you remember how... It's, it's about this man in our state back in colonial times, and we're fighting a war. You know, the United States is trying to gain independence from Great Britain, and Britain, all of them are our enemy, right? And Lord Cornwallis, he's our enemy, and he's got all these various forces. But Colonel, is it Colonel Tavington? Is that his name? You remember that Colonel Tavington? This guy's just really the enemy. He is really wicked. He's really, I hate that guy, right? I am so glad. What's What's, um, what's his name? What's the hero's name in the story? I forget. Yeah, I know, but what's his name in the story? I can't remember. Anyway, Mel Gibson, a.k.a. Swamp Fox, a.k.a. whatever his name is in the movie. I'm so glad in the end he ends up getting Colonel Tavington. It's just evil, right? Well, they're all. Yeah, but he's. Some are more wicked than others. Number two, listen. This phrase that this demonic force, this unclean spirit, says in itself, and by the way, they have personality. They have desires that are unmet. They think thoughts. They take act. This thing has personality. They have personality. The words, my house, what does that tell you? My house means that they have a possessiveness in their approach to the human beings whose body they try to possess. A person could say, wait a minute, that's not your house. God made them. That's their body. Their attitude is, no, I want that body. And they come in and they just kind of start taking over. We've lived in our house for 17 years. We have a lot more stuff on the wall than we ever had back in 2003. The longer we live there, the more and more we're making it our house. This being is coming into this person. And he's just making himself at home. And he's made this life chaotic and unclean. He leaves and comes back and it's like, that's not how I left this place. And he's really upset about it. And so he comes with seven others worse than him. 
my house. They're possessive. This is mine. I'm going to make it my own. It's your loved one's life, they come in and say, nope, my, my house. Third thought, very quick, want to have to develop this. Here's a fact. The same person can be possessed multiple times. Possessed by a demonic force, not possessed. Later on, possessed again. That's one of the main points of our text today. Next point to be made is this word empty. He comes and finds this, quote, house, this person empty. Guys, this actually validates something that I've said multiple times and I never really thought about and I didn't have a text to back it up. Now I do. This demonic force comes back to the, quote, house, person that it used to live in, and it knows it is empty. What does that tell you? Demons know if you are empty, it's just you, it knows, whoa, another unclean spirit is already in that person. So here's what I don't know again. Here's a human being possessed by a demon. I'll promise you when another person comes that is possessed by a demon, this demon knows that this person, and they both recognize. I don't know if the human host understands it, but it's the weirdest thing. Have you ever noticed in school? Have you ever noticed in youth groups? Have you ever noticed in churches? Have you ever, wherever, the same kind of people that you wonder about, do you think that they find each other? It is the weirdest. It doesn't take long. They find, and the human host may not even know, but that which is in them knows. They recognize and they can discern that one's occupied. This one's empty. And surely they know, whoa, that one has the Holy Spirit of God in them. They recognize that in us. Human hosts, maybe, but the demon inside of them recognizes the Holy Spirit of God in you and I. And then not on your handout, quick thought. Multiple spirits can enter the same person at one time. So again, let's keep our notes going. Notice this unclean spirit goes looking for rest, but he finds none. Why not? Can I propose a simple thought? The reason he cannot find rest is because nothing on earth can satisfy a demon who has already lived in heaven with God. Please understand that. These are real beings that have lived in heaven with the Lord Jesus, that not with Christ, Jesus himself, but with the Son of God and with the Holy Spirit of God and with God the Father. They've seen heaven. They are ruined for earth. This is real punishment for them to be banished down to the earth. They're looking around for something that satisfies. Nothing satisfies. Kind of reminds me of the Apostle Paul. If you ever wonder, is this life as good as the next life? Isn't the next life really better? Go read Philippians chapter 1 and just really study it with this context. Paul had already seen the third heaven. Paul was able to go see heaven, heaven, and then he had to continue to come back down here and keep living. His attitude in Philippians chapter 1 while he's in prison is... The Lord may let me be released from prison. If he does, then it'll be a good thing I can minister to you. But his real attitude, if you read underneath, if it's up to me, I'm ready to just go on. But Paul, they may kill you. I'm ready to go on. He's already seen behind the curtain. Nothing here impressed him or drew him anymore. That's the, the sad state of demonic forces. Nothing satisfies. And so notice, watch, they crave a body. They want a body. Can't find rest over here in these arid, dry, waterless places. So I'm going to go back. I need a body. I don't know what it is, guys. Some of you remember Matthew chapter 8, verse number 31. Jesus is casting many demons out of two men, two maniacs in the town of Gadara. 
And these demons, before they get cast out, make a deal with the Lord Jesus. We know you're going to make us come out of these two men. Can we at least go over there into those 2,000 swine? And the Lord gives them permission. Let that sink in. If they can't have this human body, then they will take an animal's body. They want a body. Some, they crave a body. You say, animals can? Absolutely. It was joked about by someone who dog and cat set for us one time that our cat had a demon. I literally, I, I literally think... Whether it's the same one or not. I, it would not surprise me if I get to heaven and the Lord says, yeah, that, a demon came in that thing sometimes and sometimes it wasn't. The things, they love a body. It is the, they want a body. And I think angel gave them a body sometimes. <laughs> and we didn't cry a lot when she passed away. <laughs> Erica cried some, but I don't think the rest of us did a lot. <laughs> They're wanting a body. Guys, look at verse number 43. I return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds that. She says, Jeff, okay, this is all this demonology stuff that with the study of demons. Is it heading anywhere? Watch. When it comes, Jesus says, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Empty, swept, and put in order. Which one of those is the problem? Empty. That's the problem. Empty is a big problem. This person was possessed of a demon, but the demon's gone. The demon comes back, and the person is still empty so the demonic force is going to take advantage of it but the life has been swept hang with me the person this has happened a demonic force goes out and now it's like they're free they start cleaning up the life they're getting rid of former sin former sin is being uh, it's, it's almost like they have a different countenance their appearance looks different again you're holding a job longer you're starting to do some good things. Spending more time with the family. It's like this weight of guilt has been lifted. Wonderful things are happening. Guys, it's some of you have homes or apartments or a trailer, a condo, whatever it is, and you are renters. I know that some of you are renters. It's not my world. Some of you are renters. It's like you have this awful renter, and they finally leave. And when they leave... They've left a total wreck. And some of you are like, yep, had that happen about a month ago. And you hate when you see that. You want to go in and put a fresh coat of paint. No. You said no animals, but it's clear they've had animals and they let them pee all over the carpet. So you've got to change the carpets. They've knocked holes off. It's like they did this on purpose. This is a horrible renter. They kick, you now have to fix the holes. You've got to repaint everything. Holes in the ceiling window broken in the back what do they do it's like they just did this just to get me you finally got them out you clean everything up with the help of some other people you bring other people in and y'all work and you clean and you restore things and you set things back in order wonderful same renter comes back gets in the same house only he brings seven other renters worse than him and you're thinking I shouldn't let that happen no you need to get the right renter you need to get the right renter in the house don't let them back in the empty house now I'm getting ready to say something super simple very simple the problem with this man demon goes out he only takes the opportunity of freedom to clean up his life. Gets rid of some sins. 
I don't know if I'm describing anybody here, but I honestly, I, Jeff, don't say it. Yeah, I, I feel like I have to make this so simple. Somebody, and, and if one person, if what I'm about to describe is just one person, it's worth saying. And so I'll ask for your patience. Do you guys know there is somebody listening right now, and this is their theology? You know, wherever you're at, maybe it's here or that camera. I don't know. You pretty well realize you're not on your way to heaven. You know you're not. If you were to go to heaven, it would be like pleasantly surprised. I don't think I am. Most of you are like, well, that's not me. But somebody, they realize they're not on their way to heaven. That tells me you are not on your way to heaven. You say, Jeff, how do you know that? Because Christians have faith. Does that make sense? If somebody's like, I'm pretty sure I'm not on my way to heaven. You are not on your way to heaven. I'll promise you because Christians have faith. Some people have a false faith, a false assurance. And they're going to get rudely surprised. But all who end up going to heaven expect to go there. They expect it. That's why they're going there. They have faith that Jesus has saved them. But there's somebody and you, you realize I'm not yet a Christian. I know that I'm not on my way to heaven. But here's the problem. In your core, you think you will be on your way to heaven if you could just get rid of one or two sinful habits. I just got one or two things. Listen, you think the big difference between you and any saved person and all the saved people here, you think the big difference between you and them is your one or two sins. That is not the difference between you and everybody here. Why don't you listen carefully? If you work and sacrifice and get rid of some sins out of your life, that is you sacrificing. You're doing the sacrificing. You're doing the work. You're getting rid of sin. You are not trusting Jesus' sacrifice. Huge difference. You are not saved because of the effort. But I, I think, I know I'm not a Christian, but if I just get rid of these two or three things, then I'll be on my way to heaven too. No, you will not. That's the problem of this man. He cleaned the house. I'm good now, right? No, you are not good. Salvation is by grace alone. Received through faith alone. And that faith is in Christ alone. Nowhere in that formula of salvation is you doing good and cleaning up your life and earning your way to heaven. I know that is so simple. You say, Jeff, you preach this every week. That's the text. That's what it's calling for. Look at verse number 44. I'll return to my house from whence I came. He finds it empty, swept, and put in order. And then he goes back with it and brings with him seven other, more, seven other spirits more evil than itself. They enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. That's sad. The last state is worse than the first. If you're taking notes, write this down. When an evil spirit, I know right now you say, Jeff, you're talking in theory because I don't think I know anyone who has. Okay, just note this. When an evil spirit leaves a person, that person remains vulnerable to further possessions, future possessions by demonic forces. They remain vulnerable and they continue to remain vulnerable and remain vulnerable and remain vulnerable. They are vulnerable. They continue to be vulnerable until when? Until they put their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
only then do they receive the Holy Spirit. Once you get saved by putting your faith in them, you don't go out. You don't go out and say, I want the Holy Spirit. No, that's not what you do. You put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, His death on the cross, to pay for all your sins. You hear God's offer. You say, I'll take it. I'm trusting Jesus only. Then He gives you the Holy Spirit. Now you are occupied. There's no vacancy in here. They cannot come in and occupy a Christian's body at that point because the Holy Spirit, who is stronger than them, occupies. You have to have that. Guys, I'm going to say it. I'm going to be real clear here. I know it's super simple. If someone has a demonic force that goes out, but they do not get that relationship with God through Christ and bring in the Holy Spirit, if they never do that, I think the text is hinting they will be specially targeted for a later possession. And when that happens, oh, it will be worse than it ever was before. I told you earlier about the word opportunity. I think that's the theme that really connects all of this chapter. You say, Jeff, how? Watch. The Pharisees at one time, according to John chapter 3, they honestly believed that Jesus was a man sent from God because of all the works. that Nobody does the miracles that you do except God be with him. They thought this in their head, but they never trusted Jesus. They never received him. They never became his follower. As a result, later on, they forsook what they once believed, and now they're saying that he's only casting out demons by the power of Beelzebub, the prince of demons they didn't take advantage of the opportunity later on we find literally right before our text in verse 43 do y'all remember last week jesus says the nation of israel in his time period had such a great advantage that they're not taking advantage of they have the ministry the preaching the teaching the miracles of the lord jesus christ directly in person they hear him they see him and if they don't accept him, then the people of Nineveh, who 750 years before them, repented even at the preaching, the much lesser, lesser preaching of Jonah. They didn't have as much opportunity as these people in Christ they have. They're blowing the opportunity. Those people's testimony will be a condemnation against them. You have an opportunity. You're not taking... They don't have that opportunity. They repented even with Jonah. You have the Lord Jesus Christ. You are not yet repenting. Pharisees, you blew an opportunity. Nation of Israel, Christ is before you. This man right here in verse number 43, he has an opportunity of freedom from a demon. All he uses it for is to become more moral. That's key. Finally, some freedom. What are you going to do with it? I'm going to become more moral. In a few minutes, we're going to go into a text about Jesus' family. The point of the text is there's some of these, his family members, they grow up in a house with the Lord Jesus Christ in their house, but they are not taking advantage of it. They have an advantage, they're not using the advantage. That's a problem. Here's this person. This demon is gone. You have an opportunity, what are you going to do with it? Become more moral. Write this down. Moral reformation. I'm going to do better. I'm going to stop sinning. Is not a solution to sin's penalty certainly not well, what if i never sin again number one you can't stop sinning ever again in any form you can't nor can i number two that would not make up for all of the sins that you've already committed in the past moral reformation is not a solution to sin's penalty or sin's power it will come back you don't understand i'm, I'm really going to try hard it will come back it is more powerful than you are i have two quotes from macarthur and again, as I've said before, whenever I use a quote, I, I do not endorse everything that someone says on all things. But 
These are two good quotes, and they come close together, so catch what he writes. He writes that, now catch it, you've got to pay attention. Through fear of imprisonment, that'll get your attention. If you think what you're doing is about to send you to prison, like, whoa, I don't think I want to. Through fear of imprisonment or disease or social stigma or financial ruin. Financial ruin? Okay, I, I don't want that. He says, through fear of imprisonment, disease, social stigma, financial ruin, and many other such motivations, a person can manage to rid himself of certain sinful habits. That's what's motivating them. I don't want to go to jail. Okay, you keep doing that with all of them, you're going to get a disease. And when you do, it's on you. Okay, you keep abusing that stuff, it's going to do things to your body. Okay, 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 I'm going to stop. He says sometimes the motive is more positive and the person determines to change because of love for wife, husband, or children. Do you see that's a little different? Over here, I've got to stop doing that. I'm, uh, I've been stealing and robbing, but, man, they're about to catch me. My fingerprint's all over the place. I've got to go off the grid. No more stealing. <laughs> no more stealing. Stop it. Don't go to prison. Right. Or, man, this drug or this alcohol has just been wearing me out. You don't want all these bad things, or I love my family. They have a horrible life because of my addiction. I love my family. I'm going to stop doing these sinful things. All these sexual things where I'm breaking God's laws and I'm just hurting everybody. I'm going to stop doing those things. Okay. He says, these are good motivations. And they'll work. Could I add again? People give these things up. All of a sudden, they start looking different. They're dressing different. Again, spending more time with the family, holding down a steady job, even going to church. Straight. Do you know they came to church? It's exciting. Those are fine things. If you're taking notes, write this down. Those are all fine things. But if sinful habits are not replaced by a relationship with God through the Lord Jesus Christ... Those sins often return, and when they return, they'll return worse than they were before. One of the worst people in society is someone who lived a wicked, sinful life, came and got a taste of the Lord in religion, and then falls back because now it's like, this doesn't satisfy. I've tried that. didn't work. I'm going full headlong. And, they end, and some of you are like, I know someone. That's the ark of their life. This passage is the ark of their life. Guys, listen, those of us who are Christians can testify. Christians, we have the Holy Spirit in us. Former sins, sometimes, some of you are like, Jeff, just yesterday, former sins come calling our name, wanting to know, will you still answer? Will you still let me be your boss? I know that I'm no longer your, your, your master. You're no longer my slave. You're the child of Christ now. But I'm going to see if you know that you're no longer my, and it calls your name. Christians can testify. We even struggle sometimes against these things. What chance does a person who does not have the Holy Spirit living in them have against such temptations? Willpower will not get you through. There's this thing, guys, I'm going to wrap up in a moment, and we're going to move to point number two. Watch. There's this thing called the replacement principle. So, Jeff, what's that? Let me give you four examples. Starvation. Physical. Starvation is not the solution to eating wrong foods. I keep eating the wrong foods. You know, I'm giving up food. No more food. Done. No more food. Starvation is not, that's not the solution. Eat the right food. Here's another one. This music I'm listening to is awful. I can see what it's doing to my soul and my spirit. I've got, you know what? No music for me. That's not the solution. 
Here's one. My friends, I'm picking it up. Others have warned me. I'm seeing what they're doing to my life. It is corrupting. It's pulling me down. I don't need to. I'm giving. I have no more. No friends is not the solution to corrupting friends. No reading is not the solution to filthy reading and viewing. I'm never going to see anything. I'm not going to read anything ever again. I'm giving up all reading. That's not the solution. This evil spirit being taken out of this person's life, wonderful. It must be replaced with the Holy Spirit. Sin taken out must be replaced with holiness in the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what must happen. Reformation is insufficient. Write this down. Jesus says at the end of verse 45, so also will it be with this evil generation. I looked at that and I'm thinking, what does that mean? What is this point connection with this man that's had this demon taken out of it that reformed? Again, if you're taking notes, write the following down. By Jesus' day, the nation of Israel, and this is a good thing, the nation of Israel, guys, can, can just use the word here from the Bible, it had swept away Old Testament idolatry. The word idolatry, content, not continually, but often identified the activity of the nation of Israel. They followed Baal and Ashtoreth and Moloch and Ra and some of these other gods, and they were entangled in that. Finally, God let them go off into the Babylonian captivity, and by the time the children of Israel came back from that, you know what? From then until now, like 500 B.C. till today, the, the people of Israel, the Jews, are not idolatrous people. They don't serve those gods. They're not tempted by that. They're very mono, monotheistic. They serve one God in their mind, the one true God, they think. You say, Jeff, this is a wonderful thing. They've swept away the Old Testament idolatry. Here's the problem. They've replaced idolatry with only external reformation. And the problem is they're, they're trusting that external reformation to save them. That's the issue. I told you I had two quotes from MacArthur. This second one is... Thicker. Not only is it longer, it's, it's weightier. So I'll summarize and finalize our, our first point with this. Are you ready? Some of you be like, I don't agree with that. Okay, that's fine. I'm having you write it, and I want you to take it home and say, do I agree with this? I'm reading along, and then this section comes up. He writes the following about the nation of Israel. Everybody ready? Here we go. Uh, it'll be on the screen in a minute, so don't, don't worry about writing. Just listen. Here's what he writes. He says, There has never been a group of men more committed to a demanding religious and moral code than the Pharisees. I'm thinking, is that true? That's probably true. I mean, there may be somebody around the world that's as committed, but I don't know that anyone was more committed than these guys. Again, he says, There's never been a group of men more committed to a demanding religious and moral code than the Pharisees and... Never a group of men so far from God. Never. Wait. They're committed to this high religious moral code. They live by... Never. Read the New Testament. Hear Jesus' strongest words. Nobody in the New Testament is further from God than the Pharisees. And this is where what you'll write in a minute. Hear it first. He says, by itself, by itself... Morality, living good, clean, sinless, right? By itself, morality leads to self-righteousness. I'm living clean. By itself, morality leads to self-righteousness and is a damning thing. 
by itself. But then he says, a person, and you may, Jeff, I don't know if I agree with it. I thought about, I do agree with this. A person is better off being grossly immoral and recognizing his need. Got to connect that. Grossly immoral, but recognizing his need, than being highly moral and admitting no need. Better off. You say, hold on, what are you saying? A person's better off going headlong into vile, wicked sin and knowing that they have a problem between them and God. It is better to be in that than to be over here living highly moral. I mean, everybody thinks you're great. They can't find any sin in your life. They have it, but they can't find it externally. You're just the best person in the world. But you don't have faith in Christ because you don't have any problem. You ever heard anybody say, I've never asked God to forgive me? I have. I've seen video of it. You better not live in a way where you don't think you have anything to ask God to forgive you about. That's a worse condition. So now that's on the screen, I believe. And then he finishes with something you'll not see, and it's really a message to we that are preachers. Those of us who are preachers, pay attention. He says, and then I'll be done. We'll move quickly to the second point this morning. To preach morality... Even according to biblical standards of behavior. Hey, that sexual sin's wrong and that sexual sin's wrong and you ought to look that way and you don't need to talk that way and you don't need to drink that or drink too much of that. You don't need to eat that and eat too much of that and all the do's and the don'ts and even the ones that are not man-made. Even the ones that are according to the Bible. I mean, biblical morality. Watch what he writes. To preach morality, even according to biblical standards of behavior but not salvation through Christ promotes a religion that drives men further from God than they were before they reformed. Do y'all know there's a lot of people in America, they think, boy, this election is so important, America needs to become more moral. That is not the solution. That's not the problem. That's not the solution. America needs to repent of its sin and get saved. The message is not become more moral. Now, I'll admit, if our country becomes more moral, it's going to be a little safer and probably a little funner to live in, but it is not going to make us more Christian. We need, the message is to repent, but you, our message is salvation in Christ. When that happens, the Holy Spirit will clean up the life. That will happen. Morality is not the goal. Morality is not the answer. Faith in Christ is, number two, this morning. The primary place of spiritual family. That's what I think, verse 46. And hopefully you already see, Jeff, what's the connection? It's kind of weird. Two paragraphs we're looking at. We're breaking it up in a strange way. I understand. I think the connection is the following. Jesus is teaching in a house. He gets word that his family has arrived. And so Matthew, as he's writing this under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is illustrating for us the arrival of Jesus' family is a good way to show the importance of genuine spiritual relationship with God. That's the key. Over here's a man, had a demon in him, the demon's out, he became more moral, but he never had a relationship with God. Here comes Jesus' family, but they do not yet have a spiritual relationship with the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think that's the connection. Look if again, let me read quickly 46 to 50. Let's go over it one more time so we can set the foundation. While he was still speaking to the people, again, apparently about this subject, behold, his mother and his brother stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my mother? Who are my brothers? 
And stretching out his hand toward the disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. You see what we have? We have two groups. We have Jesus' family on the outside. We have Jesus' disciples on the inside. Quickly, let me go through the family. Tradition, and we have no reason not to think this, guys. We're going to talk about Mary and Joseph in a few weeks. I'm sure they'll come up. Tradition says that by this time Joseph had died. All indications are that. Can't guarantee it, but probably Joseph has passed away. Also, when we look at the Scripture surrounding the birth of Christ, all indications are that Mary knows who her son is, understands who he is, and believes. Hang with me. Believes. To a point. I learn things when I study this. I've never thought what I now think, which I'll share... Some people have a belief, based on this passage and others like it, that though Mary understood some things and had revelations at the birth of Christ, she may not have yet put her full trust in the Lord Jesus as her Savior until after this. You're like, no, wait a minute. She seems to be lumped in with the same group as the brothers. So, perhaps that's the case. Can I tell you the good news about Mary? She ends up at the cross. You say, yeah, she ends up at the cross. Woman, behold your son. Son, behold her. He has John, one of his disciples, kind of adopt his mother. You take care of my mother now that I'm gone. Woman, he's going to take care of you. You kind of look out for each other. Okay. So she's at the cross, but could she just be at the cross as a mother seeing her son crucified? Here's the best news. I know by Acts chapter 1 verse 14, she's in the upper room and she's listed by name as well as the brothers. Go ahead and put that in your mind. Jesus' brothers are listed with a total of 120 people. And then the Holy Spirit falls on that group of people on the day of Pentecost and enters them. And all of them were believers and saved. And that's where the church began. So she ends up there. Wherever she ends up getting saved, she gets saved there. Now here's the bad news. The Roman Catholic Church has this, not a doctrine, it's a dogma. It's not a doctrine because it doesn't come out of the Scripture. It's made up. It's called the perpetual virginity of Mary. So what does that mean? Not only do they believe that Mary was a virgin when she gave birth to Jesus, but she remained a virgin throughout her life, and that's why they pray to the virgin Mary, the perpetual virginity of Mary. You say, well, what's wrong with that? Um, It's made-up stuff, and it goes against the Bible. Other than that, you have at it. Other than those two things. You say, made up stuff. Oh, yeah, you got to invent things to protect against the scriptures. Well, what are the, how do they say about these people that are called Jesus' brother? Oh, those are Joseph's sons from, an, uh, from a previous marriage. You didn't know that? Or, wait, wait, those aren't Joseph. Those are cousins, and they're called brothers. Mary has a sister who just happens to be also, also called Mary, and they're her sons. The things people will do to protect made-up, invented doctrines. The big problem is Matthew chapter 1 verse number 25 says that Joseph and Mary got married and Joseph did not know her sexually until she had given birth to her firstborn child, which tells me after she gives birth to Jesus, then they know each other and flip over. You will not see it on the screen. Flip over. We're in chapter 13 starting, Lord willing, next week. Flip over to chapter 13. Look at verse 55. Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? Yes and yes. His enemies are having a real struggle here. Are not his brothers, James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? Yes. You know what that tells us? Jesus has four brothers, and we know his mother's name is Mary. And then he has some sisters who, in verse 56, are unnamed. So, yet no perpetual virginity of Mary. So, you you with me? Jesus is teaching. 
We have disciples on the inside, family arrives on the outside. What are they there for? Go to John chapter 7. We're heading somewhere. I promise you need to hang with us. John chapter 7. John chapter 7, look at verse number 2. Jesus is ministering still up in Galilee. John does not give a lot of his attention to Jesus' ministry in Galilee. So he jumps to verse number 2. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand, September, October. That's the time period. So his brothers, who are they? James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas. So his brothers said to him, to Jesus, leave here. They're up in Galilee. Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works of your doing. No one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you're doing these things, show yourself to the world. Can I translate? If you're going to do all these things and have this following, then go to the big boys down in Jerusalem. Let the big wigs sign off. See if you really can hang with them. Go show yourself. Let those disciples down there. You ought to just stop hiding out up here. If you really you say you are, you need to... You say, Jeff, I don't think that's really what they're saying. Well, look at verse number 5. John says, for not even his brothers believed in him. Now go back. Mark chapter 3. Flip over. Mark chapter 3. This is Mark's version of what we're reading in Matthew right now. So this is Mark's account of it. I'm going to look at slightly before, and then we're going to bump ahead to verse 31, and you'll see the connection, Lord willing. Did you catch it? They don't believe in him. The brothers are not yet believing in him. Now look at verse 20. This is a little before. This is leading up to our scene that we're in, Matthew 12. Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then he, Jesus, went home. So wherever he was staying at the time, he goes home. But the crowd gathered again, so much so that he could not even eat. I mean, it's getting real crowded there. That, coupled with all the things that are happening previously in Mark's gospel here, that coupled with what was starting to happen with all the opposition, watch, when his family heard it, they went out to seize him. For they were saying, he's out of his mind. He said, hold on, what? who's this family? Mary, Joseph, Mary, Joseph, James, Simon, Jude. Is he still? He's going to get himself killed. Let's go get him. Flip over a page. Look down at verse number 31. And his mother and his brothers came. Oh, now we're back to Matthew 12. His mother and his brothers came and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. Why are they coming? To seize him. We're going to straighten him out. What's happening? The brothers are not yet believers. In fact, they're even mockers of the ministry of Jesus they're coming to reel him in, to dial him in, to correct him. Does that start to explain some of what happens as we're reading in verses 46? Oh, Jesus knows their intentions are not healthy toward him. Very quickly. We have another group of people on the inside. Who are they? Disciples. Guys, I cannot re-preach Matthew chapter 4. You say, what are disciples? Disciples, unlike the brothers, they're people who fully believed in Jesus. They get one shot at life, just like you. And these people are like, I'm going to give my one shot at life. I'm surrendering it to you. These are people that are following Jesus. They're studying him. They want to know him. Listen, these are people that wherever he says go, they go. Whatever he says do, they do. Is that you? Are you a disciple? You say, I'm saved. No. Are you a disciple of Jesus? Disciples fully believe in him. They give their one shot at life to him. They follow him. They learn from him. And they are learning of him. They want to know him. Wherever he says go, is your life marked by wherever God's told me to go? Not perfectly, 
but I am now and my basic pattern of life is I have gone where the Lord has told me to go and I have done the things the Lord has told me to do. If that is you, then you are a disciple. That's who's inside the house. The family is on the outside. Earthly family is on the outside of the house. Now let's learn some truths. Y'all ready? Let's fly through these and let's make some applications from verse 46. Well, now that we have the two groups before us, I think application number one is this. Jesus placed great importance on his teaching. Great importance on his teaching. He's teaching away. Lord, Mary and James and Joseph and Simon and Jude are here. Okay. Uh, they've asked to see you. Yep. Or aren't you going to come? Guys, listen carefully. Mary, I'm out, guys. You understand, Mary. Oh, well, Mary's here. Got to go see what she needs. Jesus refused to stop teaching and preaching and ministering because of family. Uh-oh. Jeff, you're not going there today, are you? Jesus' teaching and preaching ministry was so important, he never let family become an excuse to stop making disciples and stop ministering. Oh, how many people call themselves Christians, but I ain't got time to minister because I got my family. Your family is your first ministry, but they're not your only ministry. You're fooling yourself if you believe that. I want to be like Jesus. Well, then don't let family be an excuse for I ain't got time to have ministry. Number two, here's the second time I'm going to be very, very basic, and you say, Jeff, everybody knows this. You don't even need to say it. If I'm ever going to say it, I need to say it in this passage, so write it down. Super simple. Somebody needs to hear this, though. No one will go to heaven based on any physical relationship. That's what this text is telling us. No one will go... Let me say it again. No one will go to heaven based on any physical relationship. The Jews, often as they're conflicting with the Lord Jesus Christ, do y'all remember? He says, you're enslaved. You need to be saved. Saved from what? We are, what was their answer? Abraham. We're Abraham's descendants. We're Abraham. Guys, listen, why do they say that? They're saying that because they think being related to Abraham, Abraham is going to save their soul. Abraham is going to do something to cause them not to go to hell. You say, Jeff, everybody here knows that, do they? Ask people about their relationship with the Lord. Ask people about their relationship. Ask them why they know they're saved. I'm going to tell you, you're going to hear some strange answers. They're going to talk about baptism and church membership and, and how great mom and daddy are and how great grandpa is. And no, no, you don't understand. My grandpa wrote these books and he pastored for all these times. My daddy, my mama's a pastor. Wonderful. I'm sorry, but whatever. They'll give all kind of crazy things. Write it down. The reason the Jews constantly refer to themselves as Abraham's descendants is because they failed to understand the necessity of individual faith. Each person must have their own faith in the promises of God. And in the New Testament times, those promises are centered directly on the Lord Jesus Christ. No one, no one can say, but my family is going to help me. Guys, I'll promise you, I don't care how godly your family is, they will not be able to help you get saved. Like, listen. If anyone ever, if anyone ever had the right to think that a human relationship is going to get them to heaven, it's these folks right here standing on the outside. Woo. I'm Mary. I gave birth to Jesus. Yeah, you need to get born again. Woo. I'm James. 
I'm James. I'm, I'm, I'm the next. That's my, that's, my kid, that's my kid brother. And Jude over there, he's, he's the baby. You need to get saved. Everybody has to have their own faith in the Lord Jesus. Jesus clearly shuts it down. If anybody ever thought it, this would be the group. Jesus squelches the idea. You're on the outside. My disciples are on the inside. Third application, quickly. And this is the one that unfortunately is not going to sit very well with some folks. Next, we cannot help but notice the importance that Jesus places on spiritual relationships as being superior. If we were to make that sentence longer, it would be superior to earthly family relationships. Listen. Jesus places great importance on spiritual Christian relationships as being greater than earthly, physical relationships. Please listen, guys. Jesus, you say, man, it sounds like Jesus is disrespecting his mother. Did he break the fourth commandment? No. He's not disrespecting. The tone here is not about him. He loved them. I'll promise you guys he loved his mother. He loved his brother, loved all of them. He loved them. But when this man came up and says, but it's your mother and it's, it's your brothers, I think the tone of the text is literally this. Who's Mary? Who is Mary? Whoa, 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 no, no, no. You, you want me to leave and stop right here and go out there? I know why they're here. They're coming straight me out. Who is James? Who is Joseph? Who is Simon? Who is Jude? More than these. These people... Believe in me. These people have obeyed the will of God more than them. My brothers are not yet believers. They need to wait their turn until I've dealt with and ministered to. When I have finished with my spiritual family, I'll go see them and hear what they have to say. Now, y'all, you understand the ramifications of that. And if you want to go home and look at that and study it over and over, and what I'm about to say, say, Jeff, I don't, I don't agree with the two or three things you're getting ready to say. Okay, read the text over and over, and you tell me what is the spirit of it. Because I see Jesus putting spiritual relationships as superior to earthly familial relationships. Some takeaways, quickly. Not on your handouts, everybody just hear them. Here's one. Give thanks for your earthly family. That's a gift. Some of you are like, but I, I love my family. Praise the Lord, I do too. I got to see my brother yesterday for like five hours. And so I'm in quite a while. Um, he lives two hours away, but we hardly ever get together over the phone every now and then. But, man, it's great. I love my family. I hope you do too. Praise the Lord for your family. But listen, if you're, and some of you say, this is me, if your family are unsaved and you're like, I know certain people in my family are unsaved, can I just be blunt? If you truly believe the Bible and you know they're unsaved, then how come all of last year and all of this year you've not talked to them about their soul? What's going on? Do you really believe the Bible? It's my family. When you are with them, I'm not saying be obnoxious. I'm saying you honestly need to think, how can I effectively evangelize them? That's how your time with family. Not so much that, oh, don't let them come. They're not coming to Thanksgiving, are they? No, I'm saying think of ways and be led. Lord, can I get this person off over here? I'm kind of concerned. And just ask them, how's your relationship with God? How do you think it, what, what do you think it takes to have a relationship with God and live with Him forever in heaven? Let them talk. Listen. Make it about the, yeah, what, I just like, I just love my brother. I just love my sister. And I love mom and dad. But if you know they're on their way to hell, then you should give thanks, Lord. Thank you for these people putting them in my life. But your main ministry is to their soul, not just enjoying their company. 
Next, place greater emphasis on Christian relationships. Place greater emphasis on Christian relationships. I think that's the takeaway. Can I say something that some of you have never thought of? Here again, simple. Everybody listen. Put more emphasis on your spiritual Christian relationships. We all need to put more emphasis on these people. I promise you this, through eternity, you're going to love Christians more than you love your earthly family. Right now you say, what? Oh, whoa, whoa, what you just, I love, you're going to love Christians more than you love your earthly family. You ought to go ahead and have that mindset in this life. I'm not telling you to hate your family. I'm telling you to love your family and evangelize them. Bring them in. You say, hold on, Jeff, time out. What if my earthly family is also my spiritual family? Then you are like me. You ought to doubly praise the Lord. God, thank you. My mom has a testimony of salvation. My dad, my brother and his wife, my sister and her husband, both of my kids, my wife, and I see the fruit of their life. If that is you, some of you are like, praise the Lord. God is good to me. Yes. If not, then evangelism is the call of the day. Here's what's sad. I'm going to be mean one last time. One last, last time and then I'll not do it again. I think. I think. Do you understand there's a lot of Christians, they'll do whatever it takes. Even in a pandemic, they'll do whatever it takes to get with their earthly family. But they are neglecting to meet and spend time with their eternal spiritual family. And I think that goes against the spirit of this text. I'm not trying to guilt anybody, and I know a lot of people are really, really consistent. But there are some folks, they'll do work, and they'll go over here to get this and buy that and be around people all the time, and they're going to make time. God, but it's my family, and your family is with everybody else out there, and you spend time with them, but you won't come meet with God's people, and all of a sudden you pull out the ah, pandemic card. Now listen. If you're consistent, then you do. But if you, you say, well, I take measures when I'm with them, then take measures and get with God's people. Jeff, I'm scared of all of that. Take measures and get with a brother or sister in Christ and connect with us online, but don't just cut yourself off. Maybe you need to say, hey, come over and sit on my porch. And will you wear a mask? And I'll Find a way. You get real creative with your other family. Get real creative about God's family. Stop cutting us off. Because i tell you what it leads to. Jeff, you come fix us. Stay connected. These relationships are superior to the merely earthly relationships. Verse 50, let's close there. Everybody want to make a big deal about Jesus' earthly family. There's a woman in Luke. Blessed be the woman who gave birth to you. Blessed be the woman that nursed you. And Jesus says, yeah, okay, blessed be the ones who put their faith in me. Verse 50. Having said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven. Uh-oh. And I see my time. So I'm going to fly. Will you all hang with me? What does that mean? Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. But no, they're waiting outside. No, no, no. These. Whoever does the will. Watch. Whoever does the will of the Father. That's who's Jesus' brother and sister. So whoever keeps the laws of God the best and performs the laws of God, they're the ones. No, didn't we just have the whole first point? Reformation is insufficient. You've got your Bibles. We're going to fly through two, one verse in Romans, and then a couple of verses over in John. Go to Romans 3. So leave this section. Go to Romans 3 with me. So I'll go there. 
Watch Romans 3. What does this mean? Those who do the will of my father. Those are my brother and sister and mother. What does this do the will of the father mean? What does it mean keeping God's laws? Oh, absolutely not. Romans chapter 3, look at verse number 28. Paul is reaching a conclusion that you really need to go back and read all of chapter 3, but you could pick up in verse 21. I won't do it now. Verse 28, Paul concludes, For we hold, we reach a conclusion, that one, a person, is justified, declared righteous. It was in the second song we sang this morning. We hold that one is justified by faith. I know I always do this. I do the same motion every time I teach this. I'm going to do it again this morning. We hold that one is justified by faith. Apart from the works of the law. Over here is being good and keeping the laws of God and turning over a new leaf and putting away sin. This is you putting forth great sacrifice and work. Over here is faith in Christ. So Paul's concluded, this is how you get justified, not that. So what does Jesus mean when he says, the ones who do the will of my Father? They're my brother. Okay, what does that mean? All right, John, last spot, John chapter 6. This is our last passage, just very quickly. John chapter 6. Jesus just healed five, or just fed 5,000 males, not counting the women and children. He goes to the other side of a lake. The 5,000 males, women and children, many of them no doubt walk, and a bunch of them getting these boats, and they go across the Sea of Galilee over to where Jesus is, and when they finally find him, they fuss at him. Why'd you leave us over here? Jesus, I'm paraphrasing, says the only reason you guys are following me is because I fed you. You started out following me because I was doing these miracles and signs. Now you're following me because you want some more food. If you have your Bible open, you'll not see it on the screen. Look at verse 27. Do, he, t- he fusses at these people. Do not work for the food that perishes. You guys rode all the way across the, the lake because you want me to feed you again. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Work for the food that endures to eternal life. Now watch verse 28. They hear him. They said, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Remember Matthew 12, those who do the will of my Father, they're my brother. So these people say, what must we do to be doing the works of God? What are these works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. You want to know the work of God? You say, I want to do the will of God and become the brother and sister of Christ. Then the work of God, the will of God, is to believe in him whom he sent. Watch, Father sent Jesus The way to do the will of the Father, the initial way to do the will of the Father is to trust the one that he sent. That's what Jesus says. Verse 40, for this is the will of my Father. I want to do the will of the Father according to Matthew 12, 50. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Would you write that down? The initial, quote, doing of the will of the Father that Jesus is talking about is not about keeping the laws of God morally. It is literally about receiving Christ by faith, believing on Jesus. And then when that person receives the Lord Jesus as their Savior, you immediately receive the Holy Spirit. Christians, listen. The Holy Spirit starts producing the rest of the will of God. Now that you're saved from your sins, on your way to heaven, related to Christ. He gives you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit starts producing the other various aspects of the will of God. So that ultimately, verse 50, Jesus says, they on the outside, they're not in yet. Praise the Lord, they eventually do believe in Christ. Whoever, in verse 50, whoever does the will of my Father in heaven, they are my brother and sister 
and mother. And so your last note is this one. What's Jesus teaching us? True children of God are evident now. True children of God. You say, so we become children of God by keeping the laws of God. No, no, no. You become children of God by initially doing the will of God, which is trusting Jesus. Just put your faith in Jesus. Every person who does that receives the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit starts causing righteousness to occur more and more. We're all imperfect. We all need to learn the will of God more. We all need that. Nobody's perfect. But a true Christian, the more we learn the will of God, we respond obediently. So I leave with this challenge. Ladies and gentlemen, reserve your titles of brother and sister, not for everybody that you see walking around here. Reserve title brother and sister for those that you see the evidence in their life. They're not perfect. Still got some things to learn about the will of God. But I declare, when they learn something is the will of God, they obey it. Obedience marks their life. Jesus says, whoever does the will of my Father, initially believing in Him, and then letting the Holy Spirit produce practical righteousness. Jesus says, you're his brother or sister. Watch. You're his brother or sister. If Christ is your brother or sister, then in the Father is his Father, and I'm brothers with Christ, then the Father's my Father. And so when he says in Matthew 6, verse 9, when you pray, pray our Father in heaven. Wait, that means I can pray to the Father. Wait a minute. If Jesus is my brother and God is my Father, and Jesus is your brother and God is your father, then wait a minute, you are my brother and sister. And not only you, but every person around the world that has put their faith in Christ. We are all brothers and sisters, no matter what we look like. People from 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, those people are our, they're our brothers and sisters. Those are the highest supreme relationships, second only to the Father, Son, and Spirit himself. Those are the ones that deserve priority. Heads bowed this morning. Let's just pray. Let's just pray and we'll be dismissed. And as we do, I have to ask if anyone has such theology in your mind that I think I'm almost a Christian, I just need to get rid of two or three sins, please forsake your attempts at morality and reformation. Give that up and get a relationship with the Father by putting your faith. Both points this morning are the same. This one person had an opportunity and they only became more moral. They did not have a relationship with the Father through Christ. And his own family standing outside related to him physically. It took them a while before they trusted Jesus as Savior. Please don't let that be you. Don't try to perform and be better please no one i hope no one is thinking but i come from a really good family and i think god sees that no one's going to go to heaven based on any physical relationship replace your reformation with a relationship and just before i pray christians are you a disciple are you a disciple of Christ? Do you fully believe in Him? Have you given Him your one shot at life? Is there any area you're holding back? The people in the house, 
They did what he said do, and they went where he said go, and they learned of him. They gave their life to learning and knowing Christ. Are you giving your life to learning and knowing Christ? Are you taking advantage of opportunities? Don't blow opportunity. That seems to be the theme of the last two-thirds of Matthew 12. The Pharisees had an opportunity. The nation of Israel had an opportunity. The man with the demon cast out of him had an opportunity. Jesus' earthly family had an opportunity. None of them were taking advantage of it. What opportunities is God putting right in front of you that later on you could look back and say, Man, I blew it. Father, we thank you. Lord, I know this is a, a strange passage to us, and I pray that you have spoken to us through it, throughout it, and maybe each one, particularly from one phrase or verse, one section, one thought, one application. Lord, I pray that your word has been rightly divided. And if so, Lord, give us not only ears to hear, but Lord, change us. Let us show that we are brothers and sisters of Christ. Father, by literally being obedient to the will of God as it is delivered to us. Father, if there's some Christians that hear this passage, and they are genuine Christians, but they have totally forsaken connecting with the body of Christ, other believers, because of the status of things physically in our country. Lord, I pray that with all of the ways that we can connect safely, that they would make that a priority. And Lord, that those of us who may have unsaved relatives, God, that their soul would be crucial and a point of emphasis when we meet with them. Help us to wisely and the most effectively evangelize them in the coming days. And so, Lord, I present to you my brothers and sisters at Graceview Church. Lord, may you go with us this week as we live out your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you.